rise to, I just think about to this morning, all of the ways to measure God's grace in life and in a congregation's life together. I just think about it, you know, for Grace Fellowship specifically. You know, we're tonight going to fellowship uh, with, um, the elders are going to fellowship with about 25 new people. This is the second class of uh, membership and, uh, you know, for the year and, uh, and to have that many in the second class and the second time through this year, uh, that's a sign of just God's love and grace towards us and, uh, and the ministry that he is doing through you and uh, in the community. I think about uh, the little ones that have been added to our congregation this year and, and that will be added already. We know of being added next year. You know, if you think about uh, the Oswald family uh, and they're uh, you know, looking forward to a birth of a child, the Gilberts, uh, the Turners, um, the Cobbs. Uh, we just found out about that, and uh, you know, just uh, you know, we just think about the Campbells, and they're bringing a child home hopefully this year uh, from Ethiopia. I'm excuse. Yeah, is that sorry? That's right. I get the African nations backwards in my mind. Ethiopia. You know, it's just a sign of God's love and His grace towards you as families, and, and it's just exciting. And I think about uh, the elders having opportunity right after the service to speak with Tyler Harris about his relationship with the Lord and looking forward to baptism for him. And um, this is just an exciting, an exciting time of kinetic growth and energy among the body. And, and uh, I just challenge you, just continue to pursue the Lord. Con- continue to seek Him in his word, and uh, thank him, be mindful of his grace, and thank him for his love towards us as a body, and, uh, and I don't know if I'm supposed to do this, I might get in trouble, but like Elizabeth and, and uh, Ricky are getting married next weekend here, and our church is taking them in, and we get, we get to celebrate that great wedding, we're excited about that, and, okay, can I say, yeah, Seth and, and Courtney are getting married next year. And, uh, and uh, Seth asked her, and she said yes. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he gave it the fist pump. I mean, these are all just great, great events. And I, I, I think uh, we run past these things. We run past these things. Let's just pause for a moment and thank God for his goodness. Father, you are a giver of good gifts. You extend life to each of us physically. And uh, we, we, we brush past it in our age of technology where where babies are born, and, and it's almost a foregone conclusion in the United States that babies are born, and, and, it's, and it's an exciting time, but Lord, we just pass by the miracle of birth. The fact that you have woven these little ones together, whether they be in the womb of, a, of their uh, natural mother here in the States, with us in Grace Fellowship, these mothers, and probably maybe even more that I don't know of yet, and uh, that we don't know of yet, Lord, whether it's that way or if it's through the womb of adoption and you just, you just bringing someone across the continents and the ocean to be with a family, a Christian family in our midst, God, these are tremendous blessings. And we thank you for each of them and we look forward to their lives uh, of, um, Lord, serving and honoring you with every step that they take. Lord, we, we also praise you for marriage because... It's through marriage, as we've seen already and are going to see in the next few weeks further, that you model your relationship and your love and your covenant with us. And so we, Lord, join together as a congregation this morning, thanking you for 
Ricky and Elizabeth, and just looking forward to next weekend. When we're able to celebrate with them, with their families, with this community, their marriage. And we look forward to the years that will come in their marriage where even through the hard times and through, Lord, the growing pains, they will exemplify to us your love. And we'll be able to look at them and say, this is a picture of God's love for us. Lord, what a blessing. We thank you for Seth and for Courtney. And we look forward to their marriage with great anticipation. We ask, God, that you would just bless them and that you would keep them and that you would make your face to shine upon them, that you would give them peace as they move forward, and that you would uh, just instruct all of us through their relationship and that we'd be able to be a blessing to them as they grow in their relationship. Father, we thank you for those who are being saved. We thank you for Tyler and uh, his testimony. And we thank you for the others who have been baptized in this congregation this year. And, and even the quiet testimonies, Lord, those who have not yet come forward but have sent an email or have said a word of how they believe they have come into a living relationship with Jesus Christ through the ministry going on here in this year. Lord, we pray for them that they would continue to grow and press on in towards you through covenant community here at Grace Fellowship. Father, we thank you for all of the families that are, are, are contemplating joining our fellowship. We thank you for their uh, desire and, and their desire to know this body better. And we pray that you would give this body a, a, a desire to know them each, each one and their families. And that you would use their giftedness, uh, no matter, uh, Lord, what that giftedness might be, that you would use it to make this body more into your image. We trust that you will. We thank you for um, just your great love for us in all of these ways. And Lord, we just ask that you would be with us now as we look at your word, that we would be made more alive, more like you, even in these moments. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, verse 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. As we read these passages, we find the great teaching about the, the love of Christ for his bride, the church, and how that is a model in itself to us, and how we're to love our wives. It's a, it's a beautiful passage. I want to remind you there is one command. There is one command in this text. Husbands, love your wives. That, that's the command. Love your wives. Not rule over them, as we talk about. Not set yourself up as the uh, dictator of your home. After he tells wives to submit to their husbands, he then immediately commands husbands to love their wives. And I believe it's intentional that he's done this, don't you? What he's saying here is, and I believe this, is that men do not worry about the submission of your wives. Don't worry about that. That's not your responsibility, the submission of your wife. That's something that I will do in your wife because she's my child and my spirit dwells in her. She will learn to submit to you. He says, men, don't worry about their submission. You love your wife. The picture being shown to us is that a Christian husband who loves his wife will have a 
wife who more and more through the years together, the submission will come. I've yet to meet a woman who believes she is being loved deeply, intimately, and solely by her husband that doesn't submit to him. I've not met that woman yet. I've met women who are struggling with submission even though they are loved. That's not the point. But their desire is to love their husband by submitting to him. I've met plenty of women who feel like they are abandoned and feel like they are not being loved who are now struggling to submit to their husbands. And frankly, though I'm not excusing it, women, even if you don't think your husband loves you, you should submit to him. But frankly, men, just speaking to you the way I speak to myself, I don't question why they don't submit in those situations. They don't feel like they can submit when they're not being loved. So the the command in the text is love your wives. And then he gives the straight out analogy. As, notice that's the, the like as, the analogy. Christ loved the church. So it's not left to guesswork. What does it mean to love? We're to love like Christ loves. And we talked about that last week. Spent a lot of time detailing Christ's love for His church. Why does Christ love His church? So He might sanctify her. Look what it says. He gave Himself to her, up for her. That's the atonement. That He might sanctify her. His desire was to atone for his people, and then to sanctify his people. That was his desire. So that ultimately, he's able to glorify his people. He's going to present them to himself at the second coming as a glorious bride without spot and without blemish and without wrinkle. Okay? See how this text fits together. And and so we want to focus in today on this sanctifying of the body. And more importantly, in the broader uh, context, we want to see what it means for husbands to really love their wives. We've spent two weeks, you know, thinking about this already, and we're going to have a little more time here. But I just want to say, Paul is saying that the love a husband should have for his wife is Christ-like. To be specific, it's a radical love. It's a God-given love. It's a gospel-centered love. It's a grace-empowered love. It's a spirit-created love. It's an atonement-illustrated love. It's Christ-emulating. It's self-denying love for our wives. That's what Paul is calling us to, men. That's what he's saying. And so let's today look at this specifically. Loving our wives is that we're to love them like Christ loves the church, as Christ loves the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. I want us to see that in verse 25, the Apostle Paul is calling Christian husbands to love their wives, and he's giving the analogy of how Christ has loved the church. And he, he's saying he atoned for her. So, not, not, to, not to rattle too hard the cage of our current condition, but men, if you want to learn how to love your wife better, my recommendation is to not, first of all, go to the Christian help section of the library. Okay? There's a lot of reasons for that. One being that uh, there's a lot of garbage in that section. Secondly, don't go to the ethics and Christian living section. I don't think that ought to be your first stop. 
There are some good books in both of those sections. But if you want to know, if I want to know how to love my wife and you want to know how to love your wife better, we need to go to the theology section. Specifically under works of the atonement. And we need to understand what Christ did for us on the cross. Because that's what Paul says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the atonement, men. If we want to know how to love our wives, we need to go study the work of Christ on the cross. We need to understand what the atonement did for us as Christians. And we need to know how it freed us from sin and how it set us on the path of righteousness and how it put us in a living relationship with God and installed in us the Holy Spirit and gave us the grace to live our lives. That's how we learn how to love our wives. Not not from some self-help book. How to improve your love language or something. Those things might be helpful in a secondary sense. Third or fourth sense. But the primary way you are helped as a Christian to love your wife, husbands, is by learning how Christ loved you. How he died for you and gave himself for you and what he purchased for you on the cross. But it doesn't stop there. He not only atoned for us, but he also is sanctifying us. If we think about the sanctification of Christ's work on the cross, we can think of how we're to love our wives, men. What did he do? How has he sanctified us? Well, basically the foundation of sanctification is redemption. No one is sanctified who is not redeemed first. Okay? You can't, in other words, sanctification is not beginning prior to redemption so that we're made better so he can atone for us. No, he atoned for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He loved us, as we said last week, unconditionally. There was nothing good in us. Takes away our number one excuse for not loving our wife, doesn't it? The Waffle House theology says, if she loves me the way I want to be loved, then I'll love her. God's theology says, love her when she is most unlovable. Strain and press to love your wife at the moment that she is the most despicable to you. That's how you're a lover. Me and if we will do that, if we will hone in on loving like Christ loved the church, we will see a radical change in our wives. Now, be careful. The radical change happens one of two ways. You may love your wife like Christ loved the church, and because she is not a Christian, she may then abuse you more and leave you quicker. She may cut you to pieces with her tongue and with her actions. She may, like Gomer, run off in your face to embrace another man and come home to tell you the dirty details of it. And in that moment, you will have to love like Christ loved us. Not because we deserved it, but because He chose it. Don't hear these messages, men, and think, well, all I got to do is love my wife like that, and then she'll, she'll fall in line. She may do just the opposite. 
radically depart. Side note, I'm not preaching this as absolute from the Scripture, but from my thinking, my study time, I've come to believe that this is what happened to the Apostle Paul. I'm more convinced today than ever that the Apostle Paul was married and that he was abandoned by his wife and divorced because he loved his wife like Christ loved the church. And she was a devout Jew and could not take it. And so I think it's very personal for him when he writes to the church at Ephesus and tells the men, love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So he might sanctify her. Sanctification follows atonement. It comes after it. And it is done very specifically. Look what it says. To sanctify her, how? It's rooted in redemption, but it's carried out through the cleansing of the washing of the Word. The washing of water with the Word. Now this... this has troubled and plagued the church to understand what does this washing with water and the word what, of the word, what does it mean? What does that phrase mean? And I want to I now hold your place here, but I want to go to some other texts where we see some similar teaching about washing and then hopefully bring some clarity on it. So look at, uh, look at first at 1 Peter. Turn over to 1 Peter and verse 1. Peter detailing for us how we are saved, how we are called to be holy, how we are saved by the imperishable, the imperishable blood of Jesus Christ that is more valuable than gold or silver. He then comes to verse 22 and says something very similar to what we read in Ephesians 5. Having purified your souls by what? By your obedience to the truth. Where did that truth come from? From the Word of God. How does a Christian purify his soul? In active sanctification, that happens by reading God's Word, hearing God's Word, believing God's Word, obeying God's Word. That's how your soul is sanctified. That's how you're set apart. So we see a connection to cleansing in Peter's letter to the church at the point of obeying God's Word. All right? Look back at John chapter. John chapter 3. Jesus speaking here to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has come and told him how great a teacher he is, and he tells Nicodemus, you can't go to heaven, you can't be a part of the kingdom of God unless you're born from above. And Nicodemus asks, how can you do that? I'm an old man, I can't go back in my mother's womb. Jesus answers by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the Spirit. What does that mean? Water and the Spirit. And in Titus chapter 2, Paul says that we are washed with regeneration by the Spirit. What does it mean to be washed by the water of regeneration through the Spirit? What does it mean to be born of water and Spirit? What does it mean that we are set apart by obeying God's Word? What does it mean in Ephesians 5 that Christ is sanctifying the church by washing with the water? What does that mean? 
Well, to find the meaning biblically, we must do a little biblical theology, which is some of what we've done right here. We've looked at other places where this type of phrase is used. But we need to go back to where do we first see this? Where is it most clear to us? And we have to go to the Old Testament. If you take your Bible and turn to Ezekiel 37, you find the background to all of these New Testament passages. The purification rite in the temple had been carried on for century upon century. Before entering into the temple, there was a basin of water, and they were to wash themselves because they had been soiled by the world. They weren't to carry uncleanness into the temple. But this washing was representative of what God did internally. It it wasn't the washing of the hands that was the point. That's what Jesus says in in Mark's gospel. It's not the washing of the cup or the washing of the plate or the washing of your hands that cleanses you, but it's internal washing of the water inside your heart that cleanses you. Because out of the heart flows all manner of wickedness. Your defilement comes not from the world around you, but from you, inside of you, right? A man isn't made unclean by what he eats, Jesus says. He's made unclean because of the condition of his heart. The condition of his heart. That that teaching, see, is what Paul and what Peter and what John are drawing on when they talk about washing with the water of the Word. Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and He set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones, dead bones. And He led me around among them, and behold, There were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were dry. They were very dead, in other words. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy. Okay? For our context, it's best to understand this is the interpretation. Prophesy does not mean foretell the future. In the Old Testament, most of the time it means to forth. Tell the truth. What he's telling him to do here is preach. You can read this as preach over these bones. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the what? Word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. And you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, I preached as he commanded, and as I preached, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling of the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had become upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, preach To the breath, the Spirit. Prophesy, Son of Man. Preach, Son of Man, and say to the Spirit, the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, and they may live, that they may live. So I preached as He commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. How can I be born again when I'm an old man, Jesus? You must be born of the water of the Word and the Spirit. That's how you're going to live again. 
You have to be washed with the regeneration of the Word through the Spirit, or you can't have life. That's what Paul says in Titus 2. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter, you have purified your soul by obeying the Word. The water of the Word has now washed over you as you practically obeyed it. And you are now clean. You are set apart. And Jesus has sanctified you, he says in Ephesians 5, verse 26, because he has sanctified you with the washing of the Word. Your salvation comes from the ground of the atonement, redemption through the Word and the Spirit. You're regenerated through the Word and the Spirit. You cannot be saved. You cannot be saved without the Word of God. Anyone who tells you can be saved any other way than the preaching, the teaching, the reading of the Word of God is selling you a bill of goods. You can't. That's why we should be careful to only offer the invitation of the salvation after the preaching, reading, teaching, understanding of God's Word. It, you can't get saved by listening to Charlie Brown's Christmas. You can't get saved that way. It's through the washing of the Word with the power of the Spirit that God made you alive and that's how He sanctifies you. It's through His Word acted on by the Spirit cleansing your heart so that you will obey. So men, if I'm loving my wife the way I should, she should be becoming more obedient to the Word of God. If she's not, it is not her that is to blame but the Bible points the finger at me. Your wife doesn't look much like a Christian, doesn't talk much like a Christian, doesn't love like a Christian, doesn't care about Christ the way you think you should. Men, the finger goes to us. She's stuck in neutral because you probably are stuck in neutral. She's not growing because you're not growing. You're not sanctifying and washing her with the Word. Now, let me say quickly what this doesn't mean. I don't think this necessarily means you sit down every night, open up word, the Word, read it, and lecture to her about it. It might mean that at times, in seasons, and that may be a good habit that you have at your home. But more times than not, men, the way this will happen in my life, for my wife, is if I'm in God's Word, connected to Him through prayer, Allowing the Spirit to change me and encouraging her by that change. She sees me changing and she says, I want to be more like that. I like that. I see this happening. He's becoming more like Christ. It's a, it's a pulling along. But sadly, so many in our congregation and so many times in my own life, my wife is pulling me. Nationally, I don't know the statistics, but they're got to be pretty high. If you write down, how did you come into coming to church? Most men will say, because my wife made me go. And sadly, that continues in the marriage. So many times, moms are bathing their children in prayer. Moms are reading the Word of God. Moms are pushing for sacrificial giving. Moms are calling on us to live Christian lives and dads are in the corner consumed with television or football or the project that I got going at work or the handyman project around the house that I want to get done and no thought of spiritual growth in the family. 
And then we wonder, why won't she submit to me? Well, because she's having to lead your family because you won't do it. She's sanctifying you by the word. How ridiculous does that seem if we put it in Christ's analogy? Do you think the church ever sanctified Jesus by the washing of the word? Ever? Not once. Not one time. And men, if you don't love God's word this way, I'll just say this, then you might not know him. And this is why I say that, because Jesus said, whenever the Spirit of God, John chapter 8, comes into you, he will spring up like the fountain of living water. You know what that is? It's the Word of God. I believe the evidence of the Spirit of God in your life is a love for God's Word. No love for God's Word means probably no spirit in your life. No spirit means no life. No life means you don't know Jesus. He sanctified her. He atoned for her, and then he sanctified her. Or he is sanctifying her by the washing of water with the word. But that's not all that he's doing. And that's not all that he's saying here. He says he has an eye towards something greater. Not just the saving of the people of God. Not just the sanctifying of the people of God. But his love ends in glorification of the people of God. He does all these things. His purpose behind it, his great purpose statement here is this. So that, always a purpose statement after those two words in the Bible. No exceptions. When it says so that, you're being told this is why the previous things I said happened. So that, purpose statement, he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Next weekend, we have the opportunity to witness a marriage in this church. Two young people who God has brought together under his providence who love one another. And I encourage you, if you're, if you're able, to come. One, I think it's good for us to support our fellow members when they make this great monumental move to be married. But two, so that you can see vividly what this text is talking about. Because what you will see happen is a father will have a bride on his arm and he will walk down that aisle. And what he is doing is carrying a bride that is now adorned all in white. No ketchup stains, no mustard, no barbecue sauce. This is a special dress. It's meant for one thing, and that's to present the glory of the bride. That's why she wears it. As they come down the aisle, that father with his daughter on his arm towards this man standing at the front, what that father is saying is, she's been mine. And I have loved her. And I have provided for her. And I have protected her, not only physically, but through the innocence of her childhood. And I've guarded her heart so that she would love God first and me second, and now you second. I've guarded her all these years, and I've dressed her in this special, splendorous, bride-like uniform to bring her down here and to join her to you. And the glory of the groom 
is the beauty of his bride in that moment. Every time a marriage ceremony happens in the Christian church, it is a testimony to what will happen at the great marriage of the Lamb with his bride and the supper that will take place there. Men, I know I'm not talking about being a dad here, but I can't, I can't pass it up. Men, we have a great opportunity. At Grace Fellowship, we have a wonderful opportunity. God has blessed us, I was thinking about it this week, with about 85 children under the age of 12. We have a little army. A lot of women in that army. And dads, we have the great privilege to protect them, nourish them, sanctify them, set them apart, and one day walk through the back door of this church or one like it with her on our arm headed to a groom to say, this is your splendor. This is your glory. We should never forget that when we're dads. Not one day should pass. We don't look at her and say, she's going to be somebody's wife. Am I getting her ready? Am I preparing her? Am I sanctifying her? Am I, am, or am I always, it's okay to joke, but am I always trying to convince her not to get married? Telling her it's a bad thing. Being selfish and stingy. Or am I saying, it's coming, baby. You're nine. It's coming. I admit, I like it when she says, not till I'm 25, daddy. I know she's lying. She doesn't. But most likely she's lying. But that's okay. But I don't ever want her to grow up thinking that she is doing something secretive when she becomes a bride. I want her to, I want to be the first to know. And I want to know from her. And then her room to be. I want to know from her. Daddy, the, he, I think he's the one. That's the one you've been telling me about. Okay. Back on the analogy that Paul's using here. The splendor, the glory of Jesus Christ is his church. On that great day, he will bring with him his bride and he will present to the world his trophy to say, this is what it was been all about. From creation to revelation, this is what it's about. To Satan, he will say, you couldn't stop it. She's spotless and she's without blemish because I loved her. To the lost world, he would say, you didn't want me and you're not part of me. You are not my glory. This is my glory. And to the Father, he will say, Father, it's all yours. That's this text, men. In our home, we want to lay our head down in death looking into our bride's eyes, knowing she's more like Christ 50, 60, 70 years after our wedding vow than she was the day she took it. And to do that, it has to come from the atoning love, the sanctifying love, and finally the glorifying love of Christ. That's why I said it's a Christ-centered love. That's why I said it's a radical love. That's why I said at the beginning, it's a gospel-centered love. It's not the world's message. This is not in the self-help book, unfortunately, that so many are reading. It's not in the instruction manual, but it is in God's manual. Let us do this. Let's commit together, men. 
commit together and covenant together to love our wives this way. For those who are going to get married in the coming days, may you see examples of this kind of love in our congregation. You may say, my dad didn't love my, his wife, my mom, that way. I understand that. But look, seek out men in this body who do this at any level and learn from them, young men. And if we've been married, many of us young men are married already, keep seeking them out, these older men who have loved their wives, and learn from them. But more than that, seek out Christ that you might love the way He has loved. The number one advice that I have begun now to give for those who want to be husbands, godly husbands, the number one advice that I give is... Fall more deeply in love with Jesus Christ. If you really love Him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, you will love your neighbor. Your wife is your neighbor as yourself. It's no mistake, next week we're going to talk about it, that immediately after talking about sanctifying her with the washing of the Word, so he might present to himself a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle or blemish. It's no coincidence the next thing he says is, love her like your own flesh. Where would he get that? From Jesus' command. Love your neighbor as what? As yourself. The instructions for godly marriage are the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the instruction manual. That's what we must be. So men, how is it with you? How is your relationship, not with your wife primarily, but with Christ? Because you cannot love your wife like I'm talking about unless you love Christ. If you're a lost man, you have no hope of loving your wife this way. You have no hope of having this kind of marriage outside of Christ. Christian men, are we pursuing Christ? Or are we pursuing our wives? Because if you'll stop pursuing your wife and pursue Christ, He will teach you how to rightly pursue her heart so that you love her the way He does. But if you pursue her, and not him, it will be a perverted love. So men, where is it with us? This is the question we've got to answer. And I pray you will deal with it in your own heart. Where are you with God, with Christ today? And are you pursuing him in your marriage and not primarily your wife? Pursue him and then he will teach you how to pursue your wife. Pursue her and it will destroy your marriage. It will stifle it, it will kill it. And it will become perverted. So let's do it. Let's, through the power of God's grace, pursue Him. He has the open door. Let's pray. Father, it is in Your great name that we pray that You would bless this congregation with the right kind of love, a right type of love.